You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. There you'll find episode guides, as well as additional reading, more exclusive content, tons of great stuff. And never miss an update, an album review, interview, etc. by subscribing to the free newsletter, howtostand.substack.com. You could also become a paying subscriber on Substack, and that means you're supporting an independent creator and become part of a community, howtostand.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Hi everybody, and welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. Today's guest is Stephanie Karayuki. She worked on the show we're going to talk about, Authentic, a new podcast, and she is a senior producer at Vice Audio, has worked on a lot of other podcast projects, but the main one we're going to talk about today is this really interesting new one, Authentic. Thank you so much for being here, Stephanie. Thanks so much, Hope. I'm so glad to be here with you. So for people who have not checked out the show yet, could you give a brief overview of what it is and the backstory, like how it got started, what drew you to it? Yeah, absolutely. So Authentic, the story of Tablo is about this Korean hip hop star, his name is Tablo, and how he kind of rose to fame at this very pivotal point in 2010. He was already pretty famous for being in his group Epic High, and they were literally like making international charts. They were, you know, making tours around the globe, and they're pretty well known in Korea and kind of like bursting onto the rest of the music industry scene. And then all of a sudden in, in 2010, a viral rumor started to hit an internet forum, Tajin Yo where it was called Tajinio stands for Tablo's Held the Truth. And people were accusing Tablo of lying about his Stanford degree. That might seem a bit trivial, you know, especially from like, you know, the American point of view. Who cares if a rapper, a superstar went to the college that they said that they went to? But it was a really big deal. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And and that is what we spend some time going into over the course of eight episodes. I would say like the major themes are like music, obviously, but internet culture, especially in 2010, and how things like the this happen. I mean, now it seems pretty normal, but the, there was no real precedent for this kind of going viral and being called out on the internet. And so it was a real early indicator of a lot of the things that we're seeing today. And, and so we take a look at it with that lens in mind, trying to understand if we paid more attention, what could this have taught us about how we interact online today? So was it always kind of going to be that approach where it is because the show does seem to be kind of a bit of everything where it's kind of a crime story, but it's also, like you said, about internet culture. But it also kind of gets into in some episodes more of like the cultural context behind why some people were so passionate about this theory. I mean, was it kind of from the get go, like the show was kind of pitched as covering all those bases? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, when we first heard the story... It's hard to have the complete idea of what it's going to be. I think for us, initially, the story in itself has a lot of legs. And that was enough for us to say, oh, you know, there's something here. And obviously, 
every person we talked to while we were in Korea was like, this is old news. We've heard this story so much, right? And so (laughs) it's been covered. It's been covered. And so for us, I think in order for it to really present something new, we really had to uncover the why aspect. It felt like beyond saying what happened, really taking a step back and looking at the why was something that, you know, maybe we slowly realized we were going to have to do pretty early on in the brainstorming process. And I think part of that is just the distance, right? Because it's been 10 years, 12 years really now. And so I feel like now we've had literal time to reevaluate with our 2022 lens what really went on here because not much has been in between that gap. So for us early on, we were like, there's something here. And then as we started digging more, we're like, oh man, all these other cultural aspects, like you really won't get the whole picture unless we dig into these things. Right, yeah, it does feel like on its face, like a very easy to summarize story But then, you know, there is so much beneath the surface with this. How do I want to put this? Like, not how crucial his voice was, but I'm just curious, would the show have really even gone to publication if Tableau didn't want to participate? Like, how how was his involvement? How early did he agree to join on? His involvement, in my opinion, was crucial. I think, yes, of course you could have done a version of this without his perspective, but I'm not quite sure it would have been eight episodes. I think for us, we understood that in order to tell a a more holistic story, we would really have to understand the intricacies of what Tablo was experiencing. In terms of like his involvement, well, I should say, I should take a step back and say like Kate, who's the executive producer of our team and who is the vice president of our audio department she is the one who really signs the deals as you would say and and goes and gets the contracts so she is the one who really secured Tablo being a part of the the story and so I don't know too much about like exactly at what point he agreed to do it but I do know by the time that I was brought on it was something where it's like we have Tablo and he's willing to talk to us Another piece I really want to highlight is he didn't have any real say over how the story was told or he didn't know who we were talking to or any real, you know, involvement in the making of the series, which I think was actually really good for us because it allowed us to just investigate him like that is our job as reporters and so for everything that he told us we really had to go back and do our research and talk to other people I mean this is very clear I think I don't know if you've listened to our family episode where we talked to spoiler alert a family member of Tablo and so that is a good example of like you know Tablo didn't have any real knowledge and say and you'll hear it in the episode of like who we were talking to and when we were talking to them which I think was actually really good yeah I think so too because you know it's not like a PR for anyone it is just you know it's reporting what happened right Um, what exactly was your role in this like as a producer what kind of things did you take care of As a senior producer on the project, I was really in charge of leading the team. So there are a lot of things that go into that. 
I would say, you know, the main things before we started crafting the episode, it was really getting us ready to go to Korea and conduct all the interviews. In the tape, you'll even hear that I'm doing some of the interviews. If I'm not doing the interviews, Dexter, who is our host, is doing the interviews. Once we got all the interviews together, oh, I should also add Minji Koo, who was our associate producer, spoke Korean. She was really helping out with the logistics as well. So me and her would tag team on a lot of that. And then I think once we got the interviews down, my role was really to help, you know, make the first drafts and clean up drafts of episodes, doing a lot of writing along with Dexter. Dexter would often come in and I'd write a draft and he'd be like, okay, like, and then he'd go and make it much better because <laughs> it's written in his words. And so that was really, I, I love that kind of collaboration where you can go and you can be like, this is what I'm thinking. And then the other person is like, great, let me elevate it. And I feel like kudos to Dexter for, for that. And so that was partially my role. My role was also to be a reporter. And, and you'll notice in one of our episodes, I was actually in that episode because I also was the person who was like going to go find someone who was a part of Taj and Yo. I, I also helped kind of do a lot of the reporting. That's the role of producers these days. We do a lot. We have our hands in a lot of different buckets. And I'm just really grateful that it wasn't just me. We, we had a team. How long was this from, you know, initial pitch time to like publication? Like how long of a process were we talking? So, I mean, the story was pitched way before my my starting on it. I would I would bark me starting on the project as the time we really began. And so I started, I want to say I started around March of last year, March or April is when I started doing the research and doing some of the reporting. So if you count that to the show release in February, it, it was like, I would say a solid nine months of production, a year fully of like, now we have the pitch and let's get all the people together and everything like that. So you would actually like handle logistics of not just interviews, but like going to Korea for interviews like during COVID? Yes, I did. Wow. There was a lot of back and forth, right? Because during COVID, I mean, listen, this isn't, this is reporting on something that is very important. So we we did feel like it was really instrumental for us to be in the room with Tablo. I mean, we we knew we were going to be talking to him over the course of several days. And and back in my day, when we were <laughs> before COVID, we used to do interviews in person, and there was like a real benefit to that. Just gets lost, I think, over virtually. I don't think it's like the case for everybody, but I think in this case, when we're talking to Tablo, we know we're going to be talking to him for hours and hours over the course of several days. Doing that over Zoom is just going to be so much more arduous than doing it in person. And so I think going, the choice to go was was about that. But I think going to Korea during COVID was also really just difficult logistically. And I'm so grateful for Minji Koo, who really helped kind of spearhead that alongside our uh, supervising producer Janet Lee so I'm not sure how much you would be able to answer this question I have I'm not sure how much your role was with this but curious about like the actual the sounds and stuff that were put into episodes like concert mm. footage and clips from like his uh tv show appearance he did with his daughter like I'm just curious I don't know how much uh yeah you know about how they got those the sound files nailed down 
The sound stuff is so cool. I mean, half of this stuff is Kyle Murdoch, who was our sound designer, and he really created all the original music for the series and just knocked it out of the park when it came to making this sound like a place and rounding the series in a vibe. And he's just incredible and incredible to work with. And I just have to give Kyle his kudos. But when it comes to the archival, like the Epic High music, I mean, we, we did have to go through music licensing with Epic High. So that was its own process. And then the archival was really interesting to, you know, we knew like we were going to use some of it because we have to, like, if you're going to talk about Tablo being accused about lying on Stanford, the whole reason that even came up was because he was going on TV and talking about going to Stanford. So there's relevancy to us using that archival. And I think for us, we knew, and, and for Vice Audio, really, like as, as a team, we know we want to make all of our series to feel very sound rich, which involves taking us to a place, taking us to a time. I think with the archival, the other thing that was just not a hurdle, but something that we we had to think about is the idea that you mentioned, like, you know, him talking to Haru and the TV stuff. Like, this, this is tape that's not in English. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't speak Korean, there is a world where you don't know what they're saying. And so we really had to work out ways to make sure that when we are using those pieces of archival, that you're still, as an audience, able to understand um, if you don't speak Korean. But also, if you do speak Korean, we're not, you're not tuning out in those moments of that way. It's just like, ugh, they're like reading word for word what these people said. So it was a real balance and I hope we got it right. And it was hard, but I'm, I'm happy with how it turned out. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, there's, I mean, I think that's really crucial too, you know, to not take out all the Korean in, in uh, the sound use. But yeah, yeah, I think it's enough to not zone out or something. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious because the the background music isn't it's not overwhelming ever like there's sometimes you know just background music and I'm just wondering like how maybe not specifically with the music but how you thought about like consistency with that like the vibe you set with with the sound because the show does cover so much that it just sounds like a really hard task to actually know from episode to episode how to like connect them all with sound do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we had so many conversations with Kyle Murdoch and before he ever made the music. So the way it works in podcasting, right, is that we know that Kyle is going to make original music for the show. And some shops do it one way, but I think what I really love to do it like is to have that sound designer involved in those early stages so that way they know a little bit about what the show is and what's the vibe and where you all are going like hand in hand with the editorial so they're not separate they're very intertwined and so I think what you're probably speaking to is that relationship that we established early on so that when it was time for us to insert the music, Kyle knew exactly what to do and he knew exactly the vibe because we didn't have to re-explain anything. For us, that was crucial to making it sound connected. 
for us with music, I think I would write down things in the script and then Kyle would make the cues or like do his own thing. But we were just very communicative about what was working and what wasn't. And I just feel like communication is also a huge aspect of it. Yeah. So it sounds like the key kind of to keep the episodes sounding like they're still part of the same series is that from the get-go, everyone involved is involved. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of like they're like our whole team, the core team was was there day one. I mean, we had Spotify playlists for Kyle or for archival, we had already identified like the NBC documentary and like other things way before we ever had a script. So I just think like that's helpful to have everyone on the same page. So that way, whenever it's time for someone to help in something else or to do something different, like they already know they already they're part of the program. Right. Spoiler alert a little for people who haven't heard the show for my next question if they want to skip ahead a couple of minutes in the interview. The ending is interesting because mm. the ending's kind of, I mean, it's complete, but it's also kind of just, it, it's not like a happy ending. It's not like it's not a happy ending either. And mm. I'm just wondering, like, as you were working on the show, when that ending was, when you all kind of thought that was the right note to end the show on and how long it took before that you figured that was how the show would end and how you kind of figured out how to end it yeah the ending endings are hard yeah they're hard because i i always feel like the endings and the beginnings are just like the things that you're just like racking your brain on for so long the middle also is hard and it's all hard (laughs) (laughs) i'm like it's all hard but so in this show we were lucky in some ways in this show there is a clear ending like he did go to stanford like he this Mm -hmm. was a lie like it was not true and we're lucky in that you know it's not like a murder mystery type of show or any or that kind of whodunit kind of show so in that sense we were like well we've actually we know that answer pretty early on we didn't need to spend we knew we didn't want to end on the like gotcha he graduated Mm -hmm. right you know that's not the ending there's another aspect of this that I think is really interesting that Tablo himself talks about, which is this was not good for me. Like I did not grow from this. I did not, mm-hmm. you know, people talk about how suffer and, and how that's supposed to like make you stronger. Like right, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. Tablo does not feel that way. And so I think it also for us was important to have the ending reflect that as a clear present day feeling. We wanted to use that as like a listen, like even when you look around you, the way the world is right now, it does not feel always like roses and butterflies and like things are going to be okay. But on the other hand, we also knew that there was a a glimmer of hope that Tablo felt, which was about his daughter and about the future and the things that he could maybe do to contribute. And I feel like for us, when we look at internet culture and just the way that we all gather online today, there's still something about it that still draws us to it that makes us feel like, well, maybe there's, there's a chance, you know? It took us a long time. We had a lot of these kinds of really grandiose conversations among the team, among individual chats. It took us a while. Yeah. (laughs) I think for us, in the end, we knew we wanted to strike that balance of it's not okay, 
but it might be okay, you know? And then I think the last thing I'll say about the ending is that episode is called The Fever and the Flowers. And I think that was just a really, that was from Dexter. Dexter came up with this, he was just talking about Fever's End and just the meaning behind that. And and we actually had a conversation with Tablo that wasn't recorded. It was like when we were just chatting and he talked about the true meaning of Fever's End and that really stuck with Dexter and and him coming in and being like using that as, as a way to kind of bookend that episode was just so helpful that I feel like such a great encapsulation of what that means to be in that middle ground yeah definitely what has the reaction been like to the show from people you know from just listeners really good surprisingly good I also just want to shout out like Tablo's fans are so nice (laughs) they're like the nicest fandom they'll be like thank you so much (laughs) which like it's like wow you're welcome or like they'll send very thoughtful messages which is very nice but I think beyond that I mean we always knew when you do a recorded piece about a celebrity you're always going to get their fandom involved but I think to me like the real excitement comes also from well not real because they're equal excitement but I think another excitement comes from just seeing how it's being received in as like one of the best podcasts of 2022 so far we just got like a vulture right up and just people who are tweeting at us talking about the production value of the show and just the reporting of the show I just I feel really happy that beyond the celebrity aspect people are able to just kind of like see the show for what it is which is just good journalism and I feel really proud of that Right, your hard work's validated now. Yeah, no, it's really exciting. And I've worked I've worked on a lot of shows in my career and no one of them is the same. And I have to say like this one is is also equally different and surprising in a way that I even could have never guessed. Are you the kind of person who listens to their own podcasts after they're out? Or do you like are you one of the people who can't stand to listen to a project after you're done with it? Okay, this is a great question. (laughs) Because, okay, so I used to be the kind of person who could not listen ever Mm -hmm. to anything. But interestingly enough, for this series, I don't know why, but I have listened to the first two episodes again. I haven't listened to the rest, and I definitely can never listen to the one that I'm in. Like, I just, I can't. But the first two episodes I've listened to again, and I would love to unpack as to why. Maybe it's like, I feel really proud of them. And I feel good about them. And I feel like usually what it is, is like, there's something that like makes me cringe a little bit. (laughs) And so I can't listen to the whole episode because I usually am like, oh, something Mm -hmm. I would have changed or wouldn't have done that or it's weird. But maybe this is an indicator that in the first two episodes, I feel really proud about it. I don't know. Yeah, I get that way sometimes with my podcast episodes. I often can't hear them back because all I hear is like every audio-related technical issue. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, which is usually something small that no one else hears, but my ears are trained to hear it. So I'm proud of the narrative I laid out. Then I'm kind of distracted enough where I can actually enjoy listening. Exactly. You get it. You 100% get it. And I usually feel like one thing I do love to listen to is trailers. Yeah, I find them really helpful for my own show too. Just interesting how people set it up. 
Yeah, I just really think like trailers are really usually fun, easy to listen to. But I've listened to this Hoblo trailer a couple times and I haven't cringed or anything. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but. Yeah, since you did mention interviewing and having these interviews that were like hours long, are there certain things that just didn't make it into the into any episode that you really wish would have any certain quote or any certain just experience anything that got cut that you're like oh I wish we had put that in there but there wasn't room it's a good question yeah there's a lot of stuff like that there's a lot of really really great tape and we only had close to seven or eight hours to tell people stories I think I think there's two things that comes to mind I think there is an aspect of the show that examines the role of why Stanford was viewed as this ideal school to go to that we get into episode four. I wish we could have included some other stuff to interrogate that a little bit more. But honestly, I think we did we did a pretty good job of it. And we didn't want to kind of fall into that stereotype of the na- navel gazing like about education and that happens with the stereotypes between Asian Americans and what that means about them being successful at school or something like that. That's not what we wanted to fall into. I also feel like um, there are some some stories that Tablo told that I wish we could have gotten to. I'm trying to think of one that is so good or that was gold that I was like, oh, but I can't. <laughs> that's okay. My next question actually might help with that. Because I was wondering, um, what are some of the just most either memorable or just really fun parts of making this show? Going to Korea is very memorable. And was that your first time? Yeah, that was my first time. Oh, wow. And so it was it was a really great experience. We spent like two weeks out there and we talked to a lot of people while we were there. I specifically remember speaking of episode four, the art curator that we talked to was so cool. <laughs> you could just tell he was cool, a cool person, you know, mm-hmm. so that was that was a really memorable interview. And I felt like he had some really just grandiose, bigger picture thoughts that were super useful to contextualizing the situation. I also feel like there were some moments where the team would take a step back and we'd really go back and forth about certain aspects of the episodes. Like when we'd really rehash these these big moments and be like, should we talk about this like this? Or should we talk about this like that? Like it was, those are my favorite. I love having those kind of big editorial debates and seeing how things shake out as a producer. It's, it's like a lot of fun. I think the last thing that's maybe super memorable is releasing the show. And there's a day where we released the show and then we did um, a panel at On Air Fest, which is a festival in New York City. And we, as a team, were together for the first time. Pretty much none of us were virtual. We were all in the same room for the first time ever. Oh, wow. (laughs) And it was really nice it was just nice to be together and to see this thing that we had made go into the world and this is before anyone even noticed it or was paying attention to it and it was really lovely so a lot of the the teamwork that made this show happen was not in person yeah we were virtual I mean some of us Dexter's in LA, you know, some of us are in New York, Kyle Murdoch is in DC. So yeah, a lot of us were not together all the time. Wow. 
my related question, which actually maybe it is just that logistical thing, but the other question was going to be then, what were the most difficult or frustrating parts mm. of working on the show? I don't feel like I found anything frustrating. I would say like there were probably moments where it was really hard to get access, reporting access to someone. It was really difficult. Tajinio had a second iteration and the first version was deleted. And so we really had to work hard to see what was in those original Tajinio posts. And it wasn't so much anything that was frustrating, but we did have to work a little bit harder to get some of that original reporting, especially around Tajinio and around what they were like back then. Yeah. That's the good and the bad of doing a, a report on something that is so old or like yeah. years ago because you, you have hindsight, but then you also have a harder time getting resources for it. Exactly, exactly. It was like, it was great to have Minji Ku because she was able to kind of use her knowledge of the websites and she has like access to a lot of things that we didn't necessarily have access to. So we're so glad that she was a part of it. But even still, like, it's just hard when you're doing a story that was, it sounds crazy because 2010 to me, maybe this is a sign of my age. I'm like, 2010 is like yesterday. Like people were still on the internet, but actually it's a very different time than it is today. So kind of two questions in one. One is more just about broader takeaways you hope people get from the show. And then the other part of that is just, I'm kind of just playing devil's advocate here, but some people might look at this kind of story and think, this is just internet chatter. What's the point of talking about stuff that just happens online? Mm. But, the, you know, the, and the show is kind of a rebuttal to that and saying, well, here are the real, like, real world consequences of the internet. Is that kind of one of the big takeaways or are there others that you hope listeners get from this? Yeah, that was, I mean, I remember early in our editorial discussions, that was my, I wanted to chase that because to me, that concept of the internet being just the internet, we're too late for that. We now live in a world where the internet is very, very, very real. It affects our lives in real time in ways that we could not have truly guessed unless we were paying attention. And even then, I don't know if we would have fully grasped the magnitude of the internet in our lives today. I think for me, the reason that I found this story so fascinating is because it was an early example of just what's like commonplace now. And I think when you when you look at it, the details of it and the specifics, you might say, oh, well, this happened in Korea and there's like these certain Korean aspects and he's a celebrity and there's an aspect to that, which is all very valid and true. But I do think when you like just like zoom out, what happened to Tableau is just happening to teenage kids everywhere. It's prevalent in a way that we maybe if we really were paying attention, I do believe we might have not been able to stop it, right? It would have maybe still came, but maybe we would have been a little bit more prepared. Yeah, I feel like that's the big thing with the story is that like at first it sounds like it's just about a rumor, but to me it's more of a story about the escalation of that rumor. 
Exactly. You know, in 2010, things were going viral, but not like the way things go viral. Today, you can send a tweet out and it's like five minutes later, (laughs) millions of people have seen it. You know what I mean? It's like, that is just bonkers. But it's also like, and then you just, people will think, I mean, Tablo has said this in that our series, people will say, get off the internet, man, like it's just the internet. And like, you just got to log off, you got to chill out, do some meditation, which there is truth to being less engaged online that I I try to participate in. Mm -hmm. But the realness of it is that this stuff happens in real life. People get, I mean, if we want to talk about journalists and follow Taylor Renz, who is like, Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. She is a perfect example of just how real, I mean, I guess I'll explain to you, Taylor Lorenz is a reporter. She works for the Washington Post now, I think. Um, but she she reports on like internet culture and youth culture. And she's excellent at her job, mostly because she talks so much about how we really need to understand just how much what we're doing online is is really impacting our real life world a real world so sorry i think i'm like rambling at this no, point okay. and getting um, excited do, no it's okay i do want to just jump in here though just for yeah. the listener's sake they may that name may ring a bell taylor lorenz is the one who broke that recent news about how there's kind of like a rivalry thing now where meta the facebook company has been like trying to do bad pr basically in secret for tiktok that's she helped break that news yes yes taylor lorenz is an excellent if you're interested in this stuff about internet culture and youth culture and just like how internet is affecting our daily lives like please just go follow her don't listen to me (laughs) (laughs) I mean there are a lot of reporters on this now and I just yeah I did kind of want to just ramble about that because (laughs) I do think there's just a lot of value in talking about what happens online more than people realize so yeah I think like there's so much content and there's so much of our lives that we now live online for example like you wake up even if you don't have social media I think a lot of us have social media so like that might be one of the first things you look at even if you don't you're using your email like you're you're getting you're getting alerts about news there's just a lot of things that like with our daily the internet is built into our daily routine. And you may think, okay, like that doesn't really affect me. But like, I mean, I just think I live in New York City and um, we just had a situation where there was a New York City subway shooting. And I just think about the way the videos were circulating online or the way that even in the videos, you can see some people's rush to take videos and record and post them. And I have no no thoughts about like if that's a good or bad thing, but I do have a real understanding of like that is a, a, a thing because of the internet. To me, there's power in that and we need to discuss it so that way we are just I don't know, just prepared for what the future may bring. Because I feel like up to this point, we have not been prepared for the magnitude. And I I just want us to take it really seriously. Right. It's like not reporting on what people say online is not going to get them to not say it. You know, exactly. It's It's going to happen. It's going to happen one way or another. People will do things online. And if we don't, if we don't talk about it, it's not going to go away. So Mm -hmm. 
switching gears a little bit, I was wondering how, I know it was kind of a, a hard process to narrow down the ending and stuff, but there was a lot that may have ended up on the cutting room floor, but do you feel like quite satisfied with the full show or is there like the sense of there's more to tell here there's like a follow-up we should do or like do you feel like this you've told the story nice and comprehensively or do you have do you see it more as ooh, we should explore that more maybe in the future I think when it comes to Tablo specifically, I think we've done a really good job of telling his story. And I think we really did a good job of like weaving in his story with like the bigger themes that I don't feel like a need to revisit some aspect to his story quite yet. I think there's maybe in like when he's lived a bit more of life <laughs> in his <laughs> second chapter, maybe. Also, like, I would love to know more about his family, of course, because I feel like that's really fascinating what happened. Not just fascinating, but incredibly sad and, and impactful. And maybe there's more there, but I think right now it's it's great and I'm really proud of it. I think the idea of authenticity and cultural appropriation and just what it means to be, quote, real there's a lot to explore there. Mm -hmm. And I could definitely see a world where maybe it's not Tablo, maybe it's someone else, or maybe it's uh, a different kind of thematic thing where we really just delve more into like what it means to be authentic, what it means to be real, and how things are playing out in the real world for, I don't know, something, someone. Is that kind of what you're hoping to Next project-wise or future projects-wise, is that kind of what you're hoping to explore more is like internet culture or just the type of themes you visited here? Do you see yourself revisiting them, but in different, with different subjects and other future projects? Maybe. I can't give everything away. <laughs> spoilers, though. I know. Like, come on. No, maybe, maybe. We... I'm now working on Vice News Reports, which is like our sister show, our weekly show, which does a lot of really cool like weekly episodes about like what's happening today. And so also sometimes we do a series. So there's definitely some future potential to be exploring some of those themes. Those are mainly all my questions, but then my last one is just in general, is there anything else you want to give a shout out to any project of yours or social media or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, let me just shout out the team real quick. Dexter Thomas, who's the host, Kate Osborne, who reported alongside me and was EP on Minji Koo, who I've said it was our associate producer. I also want to give a big shout out to Stephanie Brown and Janet Lee and Sam Egan and Kyle Murdoch, who was our sound designer, and Natasha Jacobs, who was also helped with the sound designing. Nicole Posolka was our fact checker. Lacey Roberts was uh, our editor. And I'm sure there's more people after that, but I, I just really wanted to shout out those people and thank them for everything. And you can find me on Twitter at Steph Kiryuki. I'm always working on a new project. I really love deep dive investigations. So that's what you can probably expect from me or alongside tweets about Beyonce. And so equally valuable, equally valuable. <laughs> <laughs> Authentic, the story of Tableau is out pretty much everywhere you get a podcast? Yes. Okay, yeah, so it's called Authentic, so everyone should go check it out now. But yeah, thank you so much for sharing more about the making of the show and everything. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was so much fun. I, I appreciate it.